Alright students, welcome back. This is lecture 3 on Homer's Odyssey 2019. So last time we talked a little bit about introductory elements of the Odyssey. We're going to talk about a couple more introductory elements today. We're going to divide epic into nostos epic as well as kleos epic and thus divide the sort of epic the Odyssey is from the Iliad. We're going to talk about the zinnia and personal responsibility, mostly zinnia. We're going to talk about the first four books, so the so-called Telemachy, and I'll show you also the structure of the text itself and some dynamic narrative elements that it includes. It is not a straightforward uh, narrative. And in fact, you might say that this book and a long series of books is a story about telling stories. Just as in the Iliad, uh, Nestor is famous for telling stories. Achilleus even tells stories to Priam in Book 24. Here you will find within this story many stories. Even you'll find many storytellers. Not only Odysseus will be a great storyteller, but we'll have people who are officially storytellers. Demodocus, who will be given the, the pig loin, the finest piece of meat, as well as Phineas, the Ithacan singer. And so, uh, so much of what this text is about is so much of what life is about, which is how to tell a good story and how to be a part of a story and what part of a story telling stories is in your own story. And so, in any case, let's get started. Nostos means homecoming or return in Greek. In fact, we have a word in our language, it's called nostalgia. For when you have a feeling of pain or longing for a time or a place that has once been. In fact, many old people, like Mr. Schmidt, like to think, Oh, back in the day, uh, things were better. Or, back when I was a child... Yeah, food tasted sweeter, and I had so much hope for the future. I'd still say that I still do, but that's the sort of feeling of nostalgia people often have for something that once was that no longer is. And in any case, this sort of epic, this odyssey, which is itself a return from Troy to home, can you ever go home again, will be a big question. And is your home ever what you actually think it is? And are you actually what you think you are, will be big questions here. But in any case, this will be an epic of return. That is juxtaposed, that means set up in opposition to Kleos epics. Now, we recall Kleos, because you've written Kleos quite a few times at this point, uh, from the Iliad. Kleos is your reputation which is spoken about you. It is your glory as it is maintained eternally in the speech of man. It is your legend, to be more Latinic with it. That is what the Iliad is about, making your legend. Well, in the Odyssey, uh, many of these characters, uh, Odysseus in particular, has already made his legend. And so he will often even hear his legend from other singers, which is interesting. It's like, what does one do once one has done the great feat in one's life? And for Odysseus, that great feat was destroying Troy, which he was a big part of. And so we will, uh, we will examine different elements of Kleos and Nostos epic here. And just one thing to know is that even though this poem is obviously by the same poet, uh, though there is some debate about that, whether Homer actually existed, whether Homer was several different poets or not, whether the Odyssey and the Iliad were written by the same poet. These are questions that are asked by people. It is certainly the case that these poems are very distinct in theme. And you will notice, I think, a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. All right, just last thing here is that Kleos is still obviously very important. In the Odyssey, we'll see people caring very much about their reputations, Odysseus also in particular. Zinnia will be big, I'll talk about that quite a bit later, and also, of course, personal responsibility. If you are reckless, you may lose your head in the Odyssey. You may, well, you may crack your neck anyway. In any case, 
Like the Iliad, the Odyssey begins in medias race. That is a Latin term. It's three Latin terms, technically, meaning in the middle of things. So just as the Iliad began in the 10th year of a 10-year-long war, and we said, why didn't it begin in the beginning? Well, so does the Odyssey begin in the 10th year after Ilion has fallen. And so we say, why didn't it begin? Well, with the fall of Troy, right before. Well, that's an epic convention to start at some point in the middle of the story so that you have to do some catching up. You might even say that that's part of the reason why these stories are so good at telling stories about stories. Because uh, when you enter in the middle of a story, your mind immediately searches for details to create a map of the situation, and you know that you're behind, and so your mind is put into a state of uh, information gathering. And so you think, oh, well, if this begins in the 10th year after Ilion, what's your first question? Well, what has happened? in the intervening time. And so what do you do as a thinker? You try and find out what has happened. And so now that we are 10 years into a 10 year long journey, we have to figure out what has happened in the intervening space. And that is something that we will do and that is part of the power of in media race. Now recall also this term, proem. The first 10 lines of this poem are the proem. They are the prologue of sorts. They are that which summarizes the events of the poem as well as uh, uh, lays out our expectations for the poem. Very useful. In fact, uh, a very famous one of these is the one that is in front of Romeo and Juliet, a uh, famous work by Shakespeare, one of the most famous. I actually recently performed at the Old Globe Theater down in San Diego. Um, but it talks about star-crossed lovers who will not survive until the end of the play. And we all think, what, you're telling us how the play is going to end? And yet, that helps to create the drama of the play, because the entire time knowing what the conclusion is, you hope that it will not happen, and yet you are hoping against hope because the playwright has directly told you what will happen, and yet your human nature makes it so that you can still hope that that won't happen, which, you know, it's sort of like hoping that Christmas will come twice. In any case, hmm. although Odysseus is not named until line 21, he is identified in the very first line by the epithet polytropos. That's untranslated there in Greek. Polo is where we get the word polygon from. It means many. And tropos is where we get the word trope from. It means way. Many-wayed Odysseus. And so there are two ways to look at that. There is, of course, the physical, literal way. He is a man who has traveled a lot of ways on the sea. But you might also say that it has something to do with how intelligent and skillful he is. He's someone that can figure out a lot of ways to get things done and ways to get things other people have not. This is not so much a poem about an emotion that a great warrior had that led to his own destruction and the destruction of his friends, but more a, a poem about how to get what you want in this world or how to get back home or how to get through the obstacles that this world will throw at you, even when they are uh, enormous and far more than you think you could deal with. A couple examples will be Odysseus will literally have to defeat a giant Cyclops, very like the Jacob, and, or excuse me, not Jacob, am I thinking of the right person? Uh, uh, David and Goliath story. And then again, also, he will be expected with a very, very small crew of people, uh, three, to defeat an army of over a hundred. And so Odysseus will map or will face insurmountable odds during the course of this epic. And so he must have many ways at his 
disposal because if he does not, he will not survive it. And perhaps he won't. Hmm. And so, just to mention this, just so you know it, the word nostos, it's of course translated from the Greek into an English word in our translation, is mentioned three times in the first 13 lines. So, this many-wayed man, this return, this return, you can start to see the connection between you do not make it home if you do not have many skills and devices available to you because the obstacles in this world are dangerous, many, and often stronger than you. And so you as a human must be able to outthink them. And that is what Odysseus will show. He will not always be stronger than that which he faces, and he will face things that humans cannot defeat. Storms, when you are on a ship made of wood in the water, there's no defeating that. A cyclops who's much larger than he is. He can't physically fight him and defeat him. He's going to have to use something that puts him at an advantage even over things that are physically far more powerful than he is. And perhaps that is what a human can do. Perhaps that is what you are learning to do as a human in this class. Alright, um, I don't want you to write any of this. I'm just going to read this to you very quickly. This is how the story begins. Homer then asked the muse to start the story from some point. Notice that it's just some point. It could have been started anywhere. The bard, that's Homer, then implies that the Odyssey will start, know this, in the 10th year after the Trojan War. So again, that 10 year in Meteor's race stuff happening. When Zeus sends the messenger god to the nymph Calypso, to say that she must let Odysseus go. Remember, Odysseus is trapped on Ogygia, an island that he has been on for seven years, kept prisoner by a nymph named Calypso. A nymph is a sort of minor goddess, and Calypso's name actually means to hide, or I will hide in the plural. And so her name is very significant here because she seems to be hiding Odysseus from the world. And he has been gone from the world for seven years, and nobody knows where he is, but Athena wants to find him and bring him back because there is stuff that needs to get done. And remember from the Iliad, when stuff needs to get done, Hera sends Athena down to the world. Athena goes to talk to who? Odysseus. Odysseus, of course. Now, after sketching out Odysseus's history and placing him on Calypso's island, the bard then changes direction, takes a different way. Notice what's happening here. This is a convoluted story. It itself goes many ways, not just linearly in one direction. This story itself being about stories is also about people. It's also about life. Does life always go in one direction like an exclamation mark? No. That'd be like Achilleus's life. Odysseus is far more like a question mark, twisting and turning, and you never know what's coming next. And in fact, Odysseus will not even appear until book five. That said, we're going to get to book five very fast. We run right through the Telemachy, and the Telemachy is actually fairly short. You've noticed only a few hundred lines for almost every single book, except for book four, which kind of drags on and on and on. Sort of like the experience of hanging out with Menelaus would drag on and on and on, I imagine. If you could think of any of the Achaeans that you would want to spend some time with, to have like a spend-the-night party with from the Iliad, I bet Menelaus would not have been the first person that you would have thought of. All right. In any case, uh, this is something I was mentioning just now. The narrative structure of the Odyssey. That means, how is the story told? The story is not straightforward. It doesn't just, event A happens, event B happens, event C happens. There's a lot of jumping into the past and having people tell stories within the stories, as I've told you. In fact, uh, this story, it's going to start in the 10th year after the Trojan War. 
But then when we meet Odysseus, he's going to meet some people called the Phaeacians, even though they live on a place called Scria, because they're immigrants, and they came from a place called Phaeacia, supposedly, um, when they were giants, and they're very interesting, we'll talk about them soon. But when he gets there, he's going to tell the story of his journeys. And so we're going to go back into the past. Um, uh, when we're back in the past, let's see, how, what, where do I want to go? Well, in any case, we're going to go back into the past, and then we'll jump back into the future, and we'll spend actually several books in the past while he tells this story. And this will be a convention that is later mimicked, imitated by Virgil. And so we are actually seeing in the history of literature the, uh, the uh, creation of more complex narrative structures that will push the minds of those listeners, you, uh, to become, well, uh, uh, better versed in story, better versed in techniques of storytelling, but also more advanced in your ability to read. Because you will be expected, like Odysseus, not to get lost while you are reading within this text. And something you might notice is that there are a few things more confusing than these pieces of art full of words that we call books. And, well, you are expected to navigate this story as Odysseus was expected to navigate the Aegean. In any case, these first four books, what do they feature? The first two books are on Ithaca. Ithaca is the home of Odysseus. That is where Penelope, his wife, and Telemachus are now. They're in a bad situation. We'll talk about that soon. They have suitors eating them out of house and home, not honoring the Xenia. Things are disordered and chaotic. Telemachus will call an assembly. I'll mention this soon. It won't go very well for him, kind of like the first time anybody ever tries to public speak. You imagine, like, say, Mr. Schmidt talking, and you're just going to be better than that. It's like, yeah, right, you need a lot of practice to be this good. In any case, just kidding. I wasn't always who I am now, and I'm not who I will be in the future. But it will not go well for Telemachus. He will then, somehow, someway, through the help of Athena, get a ship, even though his uh, speech and his request goes very terribly. Uh, and then he will go to meet Nestor, who we remember as the wisest of the Achaeans, and Aelion, who was old even then, and it's been ten years, so he's even older now. And then we'll meet Menelaus, and Menelaus will have Helen next to him, so we're very interested to see what their relationship is like. I'll give you a quick hint. She cuts him off while he's talking twice, which perhaps suggests that they are not quite uh, as harmoniously joined as one might uh, wish for, but probably not imagine, because obviously Helen and Menelaus have some serious history, and, well, you can't really expect it. <laughs> you don't go back to square one after being where they've been very easily. In any case, uh, don't write this, but just books five to eight take up Odysseus' journey as he leaves the Calypso's Island and journeys to Scoria, land of the Phaeacians, a people who will help him home there. Nine to twelve are a flashback. Like I told you, he's going to tell a story about his journey up until he made it to Calypso's Island where he was a prisoner. Um, uh, and then he will get back literally uh, at the halfway point of the Odyssey. In book 13, we'll see him get back to Ithaca. He won't actually know where he is. Interestingly enough, we'll talk about that. And then uh, books 13 to 24 will be a direct shot to the end. He's going to have to uh, find some suitors, see some suitors, and, well, dispose of some suitors. And uh, perhaps he will be very effective at that. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay. Uh, let's start again here with A. Don't worry about six up there. So, I said that Odysseus has been gone from Ilion for ten years. But how long has he been gone from Ithaca? Well, if the Trojan War was ten years long, and he's been gone, uh, and the Trojan War ended, and then 
It's been 10 years since the end of the Trojan War. Well, 10 plus 10, it's 20 years since he was in Ithaca. Well, he was a king of Ithaca. What happens to a place that doesn't have a king for 20 years? Well, I guess it could just become better. <laughs> That's not how anything works. What happens to your yard if you just leave it for months at a time? Does it just get more well-ordered? No, it gets overcome with weeds and terrible things. Well, it's the same with a structure of people. It's the same even with students. We put you in this highly structured environment during the day. You do things like take notes and sit there obediently. What happens the moment that the last bell rings after six period? Chaos. You all run out onto the field. You hang out underneath the, uh, uh, the uh, what is it, the flagpole. And are you doing work? Are you getting things done? Are you exercising or bettering yourself in any way? Or are you just kind of like hanging around doing nothing? And is your favorite thing to do? Hang around and sort of do nothing. Well, right, exactly. That is the natural way of doing things for most things and most people. And so while Odysseus is gone, we, the weeds have started, started to grow. And so what this means is that all the good fathers have gone with Odysseus to Ilion. And so there is a generation of fatherless men here on Ithaca. And without these men there, they haven't exactly learned how to honor the Xenia. They haven't exactly learned how to be honorable individuals. And so we have these suitors uh, who are causing big problems for Penelope and for, um, and for Telemachus. Now, they are there because of a curse by Poseidon, supposedly. They have been in Ithaca now for three years, the last three years, and they're bullying Telemachus, not allowing him to accept his inheritance or to rise up into a man, nor allowing him to become king, even though ostensibly you would imagine, as the son of a king, he would become king, but he's not really acting like a king. People don't respect him as a man. People are not going to follow him. A big part of being a king is people do what you say. They're not made to do what you say. They do what you say. You might have, say, armed guards behind you, but they have to do what you say, too. Telemachus is not somebody who people will obey. And so he cannot yet be king, especially with his authority being thwarted by these punk suitors. Hmm. In any case, so Odysseus' wife, Penelope, is left in a terrible situation. Is she a widow or is she not a widow? Is her husband dead? This is the sort of situation that many people in America found themselves in during the Vietnam conflict in the 1960s. Many, many of our soldiers went down and became POWs during that time. Well, during that time, do you cry and get sad and have a funeral for your dead husband? Well, that you'd like to if he were dead, but what if he's alive? How long do you wait? A month? Six months? A year? Ten years? How long does one wait? When do you assume that the tragic has happened? Well, with Penelope, the answer is never, apparently. She's kept in limbo. She doesn't know whether Odysseus is dead. Should she take a new husband? If he's dead, yes. If he's not dead, no. But she doesn't know which one is which. And she's getting a lot of pressure from outside. She has not one suitor, not two suitors, 108 suitors. You can only imagine how insistent that is. That's more people trying to marry her than we have as freshmen in the freshman class. And that's just Penelope. That's not even Helen. You can only imagine how many people Helen had, well, in any case. So, Telemachus, who is he? Is he the son of a king who's about to become a king? Or is he just some punk kid, son of a dead guy who died in the water, who's never going to be king? That's an important question to him. And that's a question that he's asking every day of his life. Because how is he going to be a king if he can't even command a suitor to leave his house? How is he going to tell people 
to act in a certain way on an entire kingdom, an island kingdom, and actually an archipelago, a string of islands. It's when he says, hey, get out of my house. The guy says, no, nerd, go away. He's like, yeah, okay. It's like, yeah, how's that going to transform into king? I don't know, but it's going to happen. And so we're going to have to see it together. In any case, the Odyssey takes for granted the fact, you don't need to write this, that there must be a king. That's the only really uh, political structure that exists at this time. Later on, there will be aristocracies, oligarchies, democracies, democracies, uh, plutocracies. All sorts of different political systems will be tried. We all think democracy is great. It seems to work. Um, but um, monarchy was the order of the day. And so that's something I imagine you expected, but that is true. And Ithaca has been without its king for 20 years and without the boss around. Well, you know, the workers don't always get the work done. Think about yourselves when teacher is in the room. Think about you when sub is in the room. Exactly the same. Not even close. Not even close. All right. It's just like when parents are there and babysitter is there. Anybody saw the babysitter? Just kidding. All right. In any case, the suitors. The suitors, the suitors, the suitors. They are the focal point for all these troubles in both family and society. They are a familial and a societal problem. They are a problem to Penelope because they want to become part of her family. They are also being uh, insulting to her son who must rise up and take his home and possibly the kingdom as well. They are also a, so a social issue. What happens to a society when the young working men are spending their entire time all day just playing discus like the Myrmidons when they weren't fighting, drinking, and laying with the uh, serving women. They're just doing nothing with themselves. Well, there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining a society. That's why you have people that learn to work and spend all their time working uh, five days a week, many hours a day, maybe even more days, maybe even more hours. Uh, CEOs supposedly uh, takes them 20 years to become CEOs if they consistently work in their industry. Takes 14 hour days, six days a week for 20 straight years to get to that level. That's the top level of a Fortune 5 or 500 organization. So that means a lot of work. In any case, these suitors are not doing that sort of work. They are what we would call these days loafers or layabouts. And they are destroying Odysseus's household. How? Well, there are a lot of them, and they're eating a lot, and food does not, <laughs> interestingly enough, this sort of food does not grow on trees. They're not eating figs. And dates, they're eating pigs. They're eating expensive pigs, expensive beef, things that are uh, creatures that need to be stolen from other kingdoms, then herded uh, with great skill, and then they have to have wolves kept from them, lions kept from them, depending on what they have in Ithaca, they may not have lions. Uh, and also, uh, uh, of course, other people, pirates. Piracy was big back then. How you should imagine these Achaeans and Trojans is how you imagine Vikings. They like to get on a ship, go to another people, raid those people of their women and things, and take those back home. And that's how they got rich. And, well, then they need to be strong enough to maintain that stuff when pirates come after them. In fact, Odysseus will be questioned as if he is a pirate multiple times when he shows up. Are you a vagabond? He'll be asked by Eumaeus. And I think it's book 14. Are you a pirate? He'll be asked by the Cyclops I mentioned before in book 9. Uh, when he's telling the story about the past, which you'll have to keep straight. And, uh, uh, well, he'll, it'll even be sort of suggested by both Alpinoas and Nausicaa, too. What sort of man are you uh, that comes my way? When you look at a man, apparently, you don't know whether he's good or evil. You don't know whether they're 
there to bring you a gift or there to take something from you? Are they Santa or anti-Santa? In any case. Oh. And so, the suitor's wanton disregard of the pro of proprieties of what is proper can be seen as a result of the disordered state of Ithaca. So Odysseus isn't around. Perhaps it is not simply the suitor's fault that they are acting this way. Perhaps it is the fault of the leadership and the lack of leadership that people <coughs> act this way. And in fact, a larger philosophical question or psychological question or sociological question for you is, whenever there is not a strong leader in a society or group of people, will it be a more disordered or a less disordered, a better ordered or a worse ordered environment? Something to think of when you think of the leader's in your own lives. Perhaps even think of the classrooms you find yourselves in and how well ordered they are and how strong the leader is in that room. Perhaps think about your coaches. Perhaps think about even your homes. This, these are the questions that are being opened up to you through this text. What sort of leader do you want to be? And do you want people like suitors behind you or people like the Achaeans behind you? Though technically the suitors are Achaeans, they did not fight. In any case, Okay, there's only one piece of this that I really want you to write, which is C. Now, Penelope is having a lot of trouble with the transition, uh, the transitions in her life. Is she a wife or is she a widow? Is she about to marry a new man or is she about to get her old man back? Is her son still a boy or is he now a man? If he's a man, he should be king. If he's a man, he should own this home. If he's a man, these suitors cannot be uh, punking him in this house. He is, it, it, it's as if he's literally being stolen from every single day by thieves who come into his home and he is incapable of fighting off. That is really the situation. And so Penelope, who has been raising Telemachus and waiting on Odysseus, now finds herself in a situation where A, potentially she needs to marry, and B, she needs to let Telemachus become a man. Now, how she's going to allow Telemachus to become a man, and how one person allows for someone else to rise up and transform, that's uh, how that happens is an open question. Athena will help with that. That said, how does she deal with the suitors while she does not know whether she is wife or widow? Well, as I've told you before, for three straight years, she would weave a shroud for Laertes. She made an agreement. Once I weave this shroud for Laertes, the father of my husband, who was or is, we don't know, then I will marry a suitor. Well, for three years, she would make it during the day, weave it up, but then she would unweave it at night so that she would never finish, so that she would never have to choose, so that if Odysseus were coming back, he would make it back. But he has not made it back and one of her serving women has ratted her out and told the suitors, mm, Penelope is unweaving that shroud during the night. Now they know that. Now they are demanding a choice from her. Now she must choose to marry a suitor regardless of whether Odysseus is alive or dead. She wants to wait, but the, the tension is too much. An impasse has been reached. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. The situation has now become desperate. It would be a really good time for Odysseus to come back if he were coming back because things are getting very desperate. All right, book one. Now, book one begins in essentially heaven, Olympus, where Zeus and Athena are. Athena is there doing what she does, advocating for Odysseus. She says, Odysseus has been seven years on this island with Calypso, detained as a prisoner. Do you hate him, Cronion? Zeus, 
Do you, did he ever not sacrifice to the fat thigh bones? Did he not do what he was supposed to do at Troy for you? And Zeus says, no, 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 this is all nonsense that you say. It's not me that keeps him trapped. It's Poseidon, because as you know, Poseidon hates uh, Odysseus, and you'll hear this story soon enough in Book 9, because Poseidon's son, a cyclops named Polyphemus, by the nymph Thoosa, was blinded by a man named Odysseus. And when Odysseus blinded the sun, Poseidon, Poseidon grew very angry at Odysseus, and he cursed him, cursed him to have a difficult time going home and to find his home in a terrible state when he gets there, full of suitors, essentially, like ticks on a dog. That will mean something to you soon. Keep the word Argos, or the name Argos, in your mind. In any case, Hermes is then sent by Zeus to Ogygia to tell Calypso to free Odysseus. He'll be able to make a raft, not to spend 18 days on the water on a raft. It's hard to cross the ocean on a uh, ship, by the way. A nice ship. On a raft seems like a doomsday uh, 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 thing to do. Uh, that said, he'll actually have his raft destroyed by Poseidon 18 days in and then have to swim for the last two days. So you can only imagine how terrible and difficult it would be to swim on the open water in the ocean for two straight days. Many people would die after 10 minutes of swimming on the open ocean. Maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe an hour, two hours, you're already pushing almost every human in existence. Three hours, you're, you know, it's getting pretty tough. And, well, he's got to survive 48 hours. So, Odysseus is sort of like the Hanukkah menorah. He just keeps going and going and going. In any case, Athena, she's going to take three different forms during the first two books. First, she's going to show up as a traveler named Mentes. She's going to give Telemachus some great advice. Apparently, she's the first person who's ever showed up who hasn't told some lie about Odysseus and has given good advice because he goes to sit next to her and he just eats it up. He's like, yeah, man, you're really telling us some good things. You're like Mr. Schmidt over here. Yeah. He didn't know Mr. Schmidt, but Athena and Mr. Schmidt, you know, it's sort of like an Odysseus-Athena relationship. In any case, you know that. So, second, she'll show up as a character named Mentor. Mentor. Now, you know the word mentor. You're like, oh, mentor, like somebody who like helps to guide you? It's like, yeah, that's where we got the term from. This guy. Mentor was the man who, he's an old man, who was left in charge of Odysseus' house. Apparently he didn't do the best job because, of course, those suitors have popped up there. But, well, you know, he's not a, uh, what do we call pesticide control? What's the most, he's not the Orkin man. There we go. In any case, uh, uh, she will also take the form of Mentor. She will, even for a very short time, take the form of Telemachus when she needs to convince people to crew the ship that Telemachus will take to Sandy Pylos. All right, now. Ah, yes. Here's the plan. I'm just going to lay it out very quickly. Athena, on heaven, still has said this. Hermes is going to go down to Odigia, free Odysseus. Odysseus will then get freed, make it to this place called Scoria, where he's going to tell some stories, but then he's going to make it back to Ithaca. Telemachus is going to have to get up off his butt, call an assembly, get a ship, take that ship to Sandy Pylos, talk to Nestor, which he's really embarrassed about because he doesn't really know how to talk, yeah, he's never spoken publicly in front of somebody, especially not a great king who's a war hero, uh, full and fills the stories, a living legend, literally speaking. Uh, then he's going to have to meet Menelaus, who's an even bigger living le legend, the richest man alive as far as Telemachus is concerned. In fact, when he sees his home, he will say, this must be what Zeus's house looks like. But Menelaus, in typical humble fashion, will say, no, no, Zeus has got immortal, much nicer things than old Menelaus. But I do have nice things compared to other people. So... Athena will convince Telemachus to call an assembly, get a ship, go to Pylos, and go to Sparta. 
Then she will get him to come back to Ithaca at just about the same time that she gets Odysseus to come back to Ithaca. And they will, as a father-son combo, fight against the suitors together. So the odds are 108 to 2. Or, if you're doing some math, 59 to 1. 59 to 1 odds, if you were a betting person, that would mean that you would want to bet on the suitors. Because that would be the most likely way to get your money back. That said, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Alright, in any case, I know it says end of lecture there, but that's, that's the wrong one. In any case, the first four books. What's the big theme of these first four books? Well, I told you we were going to talk a little bit about Xenia today. And so I'm just going to re-mention this to you because we learned about this during the course of the Iliad when we talked about Geras, when we talked about Time, and when we talked about Kleos. Well, remember that Xenia is a very complicated and yet very simple concept. It's usually translated as guest-host relationship. That's how I generally use it. But it actually means five different words, and I actually have them written up here. Guest and host, of course. Stranger is where we get the word xenophobia from, which means fear of strangers. Friend and foreigner. Hmm, interesting. A lot of different things. Well, the idea here uh, behind this relationship is that it's not based on friendship. Remember, when some uh, guest foreigner shows up, some xenios, as you would call them, you don't ask their name. You don't even ask them where they're from first. You bring them in, you offer them a bath if they need one, because they're probably dirty from traveling uh, along. You offer some, them some food, because they're probably pretty hungry, and only then, when you're eating, and they're feeling good and uh, clean, do you sit down and tell stories and ask who the person is? The idea is this. If you ask who a person is before letting them in, what is the gatekeeper? Whether they are your friend or not. If they say they're one person who you perhaps dislike, will you let them in? No. And so the idea here is it doesn't matter who the person is. The fact that they are a person is enough for you to offer them basic hospitality, even if they happen to have murdered somebody back in their old home. In fact, we will meet somebody who has murdered somebody where he is from. His name is Theoclimenus. And he will be offered uh, uh, Vizinia by Telemachus. And so, well, you know, that's sort of interesting. Sort of interesting. In any case, Vizinia only works if each side does not violate the terms of it. Now, remember, Paris offered great Zinnia hospitality by uh, Menelaus. Brought him into his home. But then Paris decided to take Helen the wife of Menelaus Baffert. That's a big violation of Xenia, led to the destruction of his people. We'll look at the suitors now. They are uninvited in the house of Telemachus, eating his food, courting his mom. That is very much a violation of the Xenia. Why is Zeus not doing anything? And I say, ah, students, you must think a little closer than that if that is the question you are asking, because did not this story begin with Zeus? Did not this story begin with Athena, who was sprung from the mind of Zeus, as if she is herself the mind of Zeus, advocating for Odysseus, trying to move Odysseus and his son Telemachus to particular actions. I wonder if not there is a connection between these gods and these people. If not these gods, Zeus and Athena, are using the mortals, the men, as instruments to punish the suitors and all those who trespass on the city. It's almost as if man is supposed to punish man for the things that man does, even though they're gods throughout all, this, all these texts. I wonder. I wonder. Very odd. Very odd. In any case, throughout the Odyssey, Odysseus' homecoming and regaining of his family and kingdom are either helped 
or hindered by the kind of zinnia he meets on his journeys. We're going to meet a lot of people that try and keep him back. Some lotus eaters, some cacones, some lystragones, some cyclopes, scylla, charybdis, sirens, Circe, calypso, all sorts of people and things and monsters and gods that will try and keep him from getting where he is going. Often, poorly mannered, uncivilized people that do things like eat his crewmates. Well, these first four books, we're going to get a little preparation for that by seeing A, some people that do not maintain the zinnia, the suitors, but then B, some people that are good at maintaining the zinnia, who have ordered societies, who have examples for us to follow. Nestor in Pylos, as well as Menelaus in Sparta. We will see that they have well-ordered functioning societies that will give us a, uh, exemplars, as I would say. In any case, yes. So, as I was saying earlier, and I think this has become apparent now, the first four books focus on Telemachus. He is obviously the most important part of the first four books. The first four books are even called the Telemachy, and this is where uh, uh, Telemachus goes through his education on what a society should not be, his home in particular, and what a society should be, like Pylos and Sparta. It's almost like he's going to be at home. It will be dysfunctional, but it's what he's used to, so it's just home. He's going to go off to some better homes. You might say that's like going to college or university, a very nicely structured place. Then he'll come home and be like, mm, I see some problems in this place that I did not see before, and I now have some skills necessary to deal with these problems. So I'm going to, uh, uh, like the Orchid Man, eradicate the pests. And so uh, he'll do that alongside his father. <laughs> I don't really need that. Okay, yes. Alright, so let's talk about the first two books, When Athena Reaches Telemachus. So she's had her tete-a-tete with Zeus on Olympus. Cool. Now, Hermes is sent down to Ogygia. Athena is sent down to Ithaca. Down in Ithaca, she goes into the great hall of Odysseus. In that great hall, she sees several suitors drinking, eating, making a fuss. There's also a guy off by the side looking a bit like a nerd. His name is Telemachus. Telemachus is the only person that comes to greet her. He takes her spear away, which is a very interesting moment. He's making sure she's not violent. And also has Athena sit. She says, hey, I'm Mentes. So he greets her at the door, takes her spear away, bids her welcome, and tells her that her needs will be sane too. Apparently, he knows how to honor the Zinnia. Very different from those suitors. He offers her a food, or a food, food, a bath, bed for the night. And only after her immediate physical needs have been attended to does he ask who she is. All right, uh, I, I have this slide in here, but I'm not going to go through it. In any case, as Mentes, Athena visits Telemachus. They get to talking. She says, what's going on in this household? Do the people around here allow this to happen because they hate you? Telemachus says, no. The thing is, uh, my father, who's the ruler of this country, has been gone for quite some time. And my mother has been courted by these suitors, and she had this... Um, stratagem to keep them away, the shroud for three years, and then that was discovered, and so now they, uh, now they're here, basically. And Athena says, in the form of Mentes, well, that's no good. What you should do is call an assembly, and in that assembly, you should request a ship, and on that ship, you should have several other young men go with you, have provisions provided for you, and go to meet Nestor and Menelaus. While there, you can get confirmation of whether your father is alive and off somewhere adventuring or dead. If he's dead, at the very least, you can move on, and your mom can move on. So rather than just sitting here doing nothing, that seems like a pretty good option. And, well, Telemachus sort of agrees. He agrees. He's like, huh? Yeah, that's, uh, that's not that bad an idea. Except for the fact that he's never called an assembly before. Seems like a good idea. So, book two. He calls the assembly. 
It is the first time an assembly has been called in Ithaca since Odysseus has left. 20 years. So that's a lot of expectation. That's a lot to live up to. Odysseus is obviously one of the greatest speakers that has ever existed in all of mythology and history. So, and then there's Telemachus, his son. <laughs> and so Telemachus has to live up to Odysseus in this very first speech. He doesn't really do it. He, he mentions the fact that the suitors are eating them out of house and home. He asks people to recognize this injustice. He requests a ship, and then the two leading suitors, for the first time we meet them, they are Antinous and Eurymachus, and they have quite a bit to say. Antinous says, it's your mother's fault that we are here in the first place. She's the one who had the stratagem of the shroud. She's the one who sends us little messages saying she might marry us at some time. No, we're not going to leave. We're not going to leave until she chooses one of us. Um, a prophet then uh, speaks up. His name is Halitharses. I think I have him on this slide. Good. He says, well, I just saw a bird sign that said that Odysseus is going to come back very, very soon, and he's going to have quite a bit to say and do to the suitors. Eurymachus, the second leading suitor, then speaks up and says, listen, old man, I can read signs better than you can. <laughs> and what I think it says is that if you speak up again, you're going to get a tanned hide. And so Eurymachus shows not only a lack of hospitality, but also a lack of respect for prophets, and therefore for the gods. Remember the first time we ever saw a prophet get disrespected? It was by Agamemnon. The prophet's name was Chrysus. What happened to Agamemnon's people, the Achaeans, for a straight week after that? Well, they got plagued. Plague for a week. So when you disrespect the gods through a prophet, sometimes bad things happen to you. Well, what happens if you add on there disrespecting the Xenia? Well, you can see that a cloud of darkness looms over the fates of these suitors already. In any case, yet another suitor speaks up. His name is Leocritus. And he says, okay, this has all been nonsense. I don't think Telemachus is going to achieve anything. This has been a waste of our time. Let's all disperse. And then they do. It is a fantastic failure of Telemachus's. Not only does he not get any support from any of the uh, people in the crowd, not only does he not get a ship, he, he also loses control of the situation and has the assembly broken up by someone who is not him. It's tragic. Failure. Terrible. And yet, and yet even though it didn't go as he planned, perhaps it was. Uh, technically successful, because he, he does get a chance to directly accuse the suitors of violating the Zidium. Publicly, there's some power to that. He is backed up by a prophet named Halitharses. Everybody gets to see this, even if they're not going to do anything immediately. And he does hear from this prophet that there is misfortune for the suitors in the future. Perhaps he will be part of that. Hmm. 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 And... The suitors do have to show in a public environment, not in a private environment, in the house of Odysseus, just how callous they are towards A, the Zinnia, and B, towards the gods. Perhaps this is the beginning of the end. Hmm. Hmm. In any case, Telemachus then gets a ship from a character named Noemon, who has con and convinces several young men to sail with him. Technically, I think those men were convinced by Athena in the form of Telemachus as she went about the town while Telemachus talks to Eurycleia and gets provisions. Note also this. Eurycleia, the nurse of both Telemachus and Odysseus, she's pretty old at this point, is asked by Telemachus to provide uh, provisions for his ship as well as to keep the fact that he's leaving secret from Penelope because the thing about Penelope is she's already lost one big man in her life. She doesn't want to lose another. She's clingy. She doesn't want her son to grow up necessarily, or she doesn't know how to allow him to. So if she is told that Telemachus is planning to leave, imagine the waterworks. 
Oh, how are you going to leave me too? It was the water that killed your father. The water will probably kill you. You shouldn't go. The thing is, though, Telemachus has to go. He has to get out of the nest. He needs to become his own bird. And so he is going to go. And who's going to help him? Well, the best person that could possibly help him is not a person at all. She's a goddess. Her name's Athena. And she's going to take on the form of mentor. And she will mentor Telemachus. All right. I think that's where I'm going to end today. We'll get to book three next time. You've covered quite a bit of material today. I'm very happy.